Assalamu alaikum and welcome to a special episode of The Audit. My name is Zeeshan Salahuddin and I lead the Center for Regional and Global Connectivity at Tabad Lab. The Audit is a Tabad Lab podcast that looks at Pakistan's bilateral relations with key partners around the world. In this inaugural podcast season uh, for The Audit, we are looking at Pakistan's relations with the US specifically its various confrontations, areas of cooperation, and the complexities of the relationship as they have unfolded over the last 75 years and where this relationship might be headed. Two episodes of the audit have already been put out. This special episode, I have the pleasure of, of introducing Mr. Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center, who is with, her, with us here today. One of the most salient analytical minds when it comes to Pakistan, Afghanistan, India, and their relationship with the US. Michael? Welcome to the podcast. Uh, perhaps if you can just tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. It's great to be here with you. It's great to be at the, the Tabad Love offices. Great to meet you. Um, so I have been at the Wilson Center Think Tank in Washington, D.C. Uh, for more than 15 years, mm -hmm. managing our portfolio on Pakistan as well as India and Afghanistan. Uh, we recently not launched a new South Asia Institute, uh, which I'll be heading. Uh, and one of the newest initiatives to be housed in that initiative, in that institute, is a new Pakistan fellowship, hmm. uh, which is going to build on the many years of work we've done on Pakistan. And I think it, what I, the way I like to describe my work on Pakistan and the Wilson Center's work more broadly is that we apply a broad lens to Pakistan. We like to look at the country uh, through a more nuanced, broader fashion than, than many others in D.C. tend to do. Great. Thank you, Michael. Um, I, I do appreciate you taking the time to be with us here today and to give us some of your views about how the relationship has unfolded um, over the last 75 years, but more critically, really over the last 20 years, um, as cooperation between the two countries has been shaped by the conflict to uh, uh, Pakistan's West. Um, I think at this point in time, there's really no conversation in Pakistan that we can have without really talking about the floods and the climate-related uh, disasters that are now going to increasingly affect this particular part of the world. We've seen tremendous dev devastation. The numbers are just staggering. We have 33 million people that have been affected, of which 22 million uh, uh, cannot afford basic food necessities. We have close to 1,400 uh, people that have died as a direct result of the floods. There is going to be far-ranging consequences for uh, infrastructure devastation, for the health sector, for the polio program, uh, for education, for security-related matters. I mean, it's the kind of effect that these floods uh, are going to have, have had and are going to have over the next months and potentially years is just tremendous. Now, the U.S. has uh, allocated close to $30 million in terms of relief efforts. Uh, there's also now a 10-day air corridor that has been opened to sort of fly in some very critical supplies. Uh, China has pledged quite a bit of money. But the thing that we always see in situations like these is that when these kinds of floods and natural calamities happen, the bulk of the focus remains on immediate humanitarian aid and effect. And in the process of that, both uh, from external donors who are trying to reach out and help and our own internal metrics, uh, the long-term thinking doesn't really come into play. Um, can you walk us through why is it that past the initial humanitarian push despite the fact that Pakistan is not really responsible uh, or, or not as much responsible for the global climate change effects, um, 
not much care or attention is given to how, how do we solve this problem for this part of the world for the long term? Absolutely. It's, it's a great question to start off with. Let me just give one caveat, which I meant to give earlier, um, that I am, and I like to tell Pakistani audiences this, I'm here uh, from Washington, uh, an American in Pakistan, but uh, I'm not with the U.S. government. So what I say, my views are don't represent those of the U.S. government. They're my own independent uh, views, so that we all know. So I know absolutely, these floods, it's, it's, it's amazing that back in 2010, as you would well know, so many here and beyond were talking about you know, seeing the worst floods Pakistan had ever seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, the, the UN um, Secretary General back in 2010 said he had never, the UN had never responded to a natural disaster as catastrophic as those floods. Mm -hmm. And yet these floods are so much worse, mm -hmm. which I think just, it's so hard to get our heads around, wrapped around the scale. But um, you know, to your question, it's, it's notable that in the past, the US has played a pretty significant role in flood uh, recovery, not just flood recovery, but natural disaster assistance. Mm -hmm. Going back to the 2010 floods, which of course happened at a moment when the US was at the height of its surge in Afghanistan. So it was fairly easy logistically to bring in many military helicopters into Pakistan to evacuate people. And that's what happened back then. Mm -hmm. And you go back to the earthquake in 2005, you also had a significant amount of US uh, recovery efforts back then. So in that sense, it's we're just seeing a repeat of history with this very large U.S. response. So I think it's notable to have such a large interagency effort. Uh, in recent days, we had top leaders from USAID as well as from State Department and, and Department of Defense, the NSC, and of course, CENTCOM had been here as well. So I think that sort of signifies just how much the U.S. wants to be involved in bringing assistance. But you're absolutely right. After the immediate uh, rescue efforts are done, then not just the U.S., but the international assistance that sort of goes away, so to speak. And you know, I think it gets to the issue of what responsibility does the international community have to a country like Pakistan, which is, which as you say, is not a major contributor to global emissions, but it has to pay one of the biggest prices because of its own climate vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And I had, I've actually advocated, I'm not the only one, for the world to essentially make that sacrifice and recognize that, yeah, it may be a hard sell to commit significant amounts of long-term assistance to, mm -hmm. to Pakistan to focus on climate adaptation mitigation efforts. Uh, you know, Pakistan, it's, its global image isn't very good. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of donor fatigue. There's been a lot of donor fatigue for a long time. Mm -hmm. We've heard about donor fatigue for years, but now today you're looking at the crisis in Ukraine. You're looking at the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the often forgotten humanitarian crisis in Yemen. You're Absolutely. looking at the human famine in Somalia and so mm -hmm. many more. So why Pakistan? I think mm -hmm. it's a hard, a hard sell, mm -hmm. but um, I think it gets to the issue of the world has, there, there's an onus. Uh, there's, there's a responsibility on the international community and particularly the top polluters, mm -hmm. which does not only include Western countries, it includes China as well, to yep. be very honest. Those countries really do need to step up. And, you know, final point on this, um, I, I do think that from a, it's useful to paint this uh, from a stability lens as well, uh, in the sense that climate change effects can be destabilizing. And for a country like the U.S., which views stability as a top interest, not its only interest, but as a top interest in Pakistan and the region, I think there's something to be said for looking at ways that it can try to uh, make a better effort to foolproof Pakistan in terms of climate resilience and so on, not just to give back for its own pollution and the impact that's had in Pakistan, but also it will serve U.S. interests to do that as well over the longer term. Absolutely, Michael. And I think that little point that you raised about how perhaps the security and uh, lens is also something that we should look at. 
I think that's something that has now come up in multiple realms, right? It has come up in terms of the political and constitutional crisis that Pakistan has gone through. It has come up in the very recent and ongoing economic crisis that is only going to get further exacerbated uh, by the floods, the damages for which at this point, the lower estimate is close to $20 billion and it's only expected to climb uh, as we continue to sort of match up and, and, and see the, the level of damage that these floods have caused. Uh, and then of course, the climate change conversation itself. Um, I guess my question there is, there's been a lot of debate recently about um, the shift in geopolitical realities across the world. And the new word that has come up um, that people seem to use quite often now is geoeconomics. Uh, Pakistan has a very precarious position in, in this entire dynamic because by virtue of the instability uh, in, in the economic arena, um, the devastation brought about by climate vulnerability, the internal political struggles, Pakistan is not really in a position to antagonize anyone, particularly key partners like the US, like China. And the biggest conflict that exists uh, within the geopolitical space does exist between those two countries. Uh, you and I spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, how things are only seemingly only escalating with Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, um, the warship exercises, the fact that China has now pulled out of eight key conversations with the U.S. How does Pakistan in a situation like this maintain its status quo and its good working relationship with both countries and walk that tightrope, considering it is it can't really antagonize anyone? Yeah, it's a fair point. And, uh, you know, the, one cannot emphasize enough just how prime of a factor U.S.-China competition is in yeah. U.S. foreign policy calculations. And, you know, I remember when the Biden administration took over, there were some critics of Biden, especially on the Republican side, mm -hmm. that had said, oh, he's going to be a dove on China. Things are going to change. But he's gone in the other direction. Yes. And it's been a repeat of Trump, the fact that he invited the Taiwan uh, de facto ambassador to his inauguration. No U.S. president had ever done that mm -hmm. before. That sent a big signal right there. And of course, also, when Blinken had had, had characterized um, what was happening in Xinjiang as genocide, that's also huge. So absolutely, this is such a key question. Um, and I think that certainly the, the tensions that emerged in U.S.-Pakistan relations during the last few months of Imran Khan's rule with his, his allegations, which I'm, and, and we'll get to, that I think put the U.S.-Pakistan relationship at a difficult spot at a moment when Pakistan could not afford for it to be in a difficult spot. And that, of course, was, was before the floods, but Pakistan was already experiencing all kinds of other uh, problems. Mm -hmm. But, you know, my sense is interesting. I don't think from Washington's perspective, I don't think that the U.S. government has wanted Pakistan to choose a side, mm. so to speak. Uh, you know, my sense is that um, the U.S. has, if you look at U.S. policy in South Asia more broadly, I think that we see uh, in recent months the U.S. positioning itself where it's been trying to deepen its relations with countries around South Asia to try to encourage them to move further away from China and closer to India. But that dynamic is not in place with Pakistan in that the U.S. recognizes that Pakistan's relationship with China is very close and that's not going to change. But I think that we're seeing the U.S. try to figure out ways to navigate its relationship with Pakistan, even within that constraint posed by Pakistan-China relations. And, you know, I, I remember, well, you'll remember this, the, the speech, I guess an infamous speech that Wells made at the Wilson Center almost yep. three years ago, where she criticized CPEC. Many, I think, didn't, many remember the first part of the speech when mm -hmm. she criticized CPEC. Mm -hmm. But the second part of the speech, 
was where she was laying out a vision for U.S. investment, for greater U.S. investment in Pakistan, mm -hmm. using what she described as a more equitable, transparent model mm -hmm. for investment. So, you know, she was not saying that CPEC should end. She would have liked to see that. But she was making a pitch for the U.S. to counter Chinese investment. That's the term that you hear frequently mm -hmm. in the context of Indo-Pacific policy and all that. Mm -hmm. Not contain. Mm -hmm. We're not seeing U.S. efforts to contain counter, China, but yep. to counter it. So I think that there is a desire for, and this is the case with the Trump administration, it's the case with the Biden administration, to try to look at the, the relationship with Pakistan um, as something that can work despite those constraints posed by China. And I think for Pakistan, indeed, it has a, it has a strong incentive to ensure that relations with both work. And I think a big question, which I maybe will go into, is how can, China, how can Pakistan generate agency in, in the sense that how could it try to position itself as a useful player vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. and China? And I think there's something, I really think there is something to be said for that in terms of a, media, a mediating role. Yeah, that, that was exactly going to be my next question. But to your last point, I think, and I apologize if I'm butchering the last name, but I believe the gentleman's name is Derek Cholet. Um, who was one of the advisors to Secretary Blinken, I think uh, in a recent statement, one of the things that he said was that it does not want countries in the world to have to choose between you know, the major powers, right. but for them to have a choice, which goes back to the entire argument about it's not containment, it's actually... Um, and, and so I, I agree with you in that regard. But I do think that there is a historical precedent where Pakistan has been... Uh, leveraged in the past, and I'm very specifically speaking about, of, of course, of uh, Kissinger's visit back in the 70s, uh, back when you know that initial bridge was built between Beijing and DC, and it was built through Karachi. Um, why is it that Pakistan is not seen as that interlocutor, and, and what can our politicians, what can our political elite do in order to position Pakistan to create, as you said, the, the word that you use very rightly so, uh, agency, in order for Pakistan to be able to play that role in a bigger capacity and to sort of try and see how some of these uh, escalations at the epicenter of which exists Pakistan in this region um, can be de-escalated? Mm -hmm. No, it's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. Uh, it's something that I've thought about myself. Um, I think to, to, the, to answer your question, why, we, why the U.S. has not looked at Pakistan as a nation that could play that, that mediation role vis-a-vis -vis China, yeah, I think that for even as intense as the competition between the U.S. and China had become, mm -hmm. there were still direct channels. I mean, it was still possible for the U.S. and China to engage on high levels mm -hmm. when they wanted to. And, you know, when Biden took over, he had indicated, he had written in a foreign affairs essay uh, when he was still a candidate, he had said that he would he would encourage engagement with China where our interests dictated. But the problem is, in recent weeks, we've seen not a collapse of the U.S.-China relationship, but we've indeed seen a cutoff in, yeah. in engagement, even in areas that would seem to be safer in mm -hmm. non-security areas. Mm -hmm. So, so that gets me to your very important question. And I think you know if there's a game changer here, it would be in the realm of climate change, mm -hmm. right? And we know that the U.S. wants to talk about China with climate change. We know that how important it is for the administration. The fact that Biden appointed John Kerry to essentially be his climate change czar, having mm -hmm. him housed in, in the NSC. Mm -hmm. That's an indication of how seriously he takes it. Uh, you know, there was a lot of discussion uh, right when the administration was taking office that Kerry himself wanted to suspend competition with China in order to fully focus on, on climate change uh, discussions. But China, as I understand it, has now said that there's not going to be any discussions on climate change issues. Mm -hmm. So here is where I think Pakistan can, can play a role at a moment when even one of the big issues that the U.S. would like to discuss with China 
is not something that can be discussed mm. at a moment when we really recognize just how critical the challenge climate change is. We know how critical and relevant climate change is for Pakistan. Mm. Why can't Pakistan perhaps be seen as the player that tries to encourage the U.S., Washington and Beijing to mm. have re-incentivize their interests in a way that they would be willing to come together and start discussing climate change? So, yeah, I don't know how much support that view would get in Washington, in mm. official Washington, but I think that it makes a whole lot of sense. Yep. And I think the potential for at least exploring that conversation is certainly there. There, right. there shouldn't be any stones left unturned, especially considering that these two great powers the competition is not necessarily good for the world overall. However, if it was more cooperative in nature, then I think there would be, it would be a game changer, especially for the global south. Let's pivot a little bit. I think there's a, a one aspect of this conversation uh, and one key player that no conversation in Pakistan can sort of go without, and that is uh, our neighbor to the west, Afghanistan. Now, the, the war on terror in Afghanistan has wrapped up. The U.S. has left. It's been more than a year since the Taliban have taken over, more than a year since the, the last C-130 left um, with the last of the soldiers. Um, things have happened in Afghanistan since that have effectively ensured that the recognition issue is not really going to come to the forefront. Uh, principle among them is the treatment of uh, females, female education. Uh, Zawahiri assassination, I think, was a, was a big point. Um, and a smaller point, of course, is the, is the, uh, is the fact that uh, Sirajuddin is playing the interlocutor between the GOP and the TDP. And both of these incidents, of course, are in direct violation of the Doha agreement. Um, so as far as Afghanistan is concerned, we, Pakistan has been viewed very much through a, a very security-centric lens for a very, very long time. And despite the fact that the exit has happened, I, f I feel like that lens, while needs changing, is not really seeing much much of a shift. Uh, in fact, very recently, uh, the conversation between General Bajwa and General Kurilla was about CT and you know th those kinds of cooperation because counterterrorism in Afghanistan is going to remain a big topic with groups like you know the IKSP, the the uh, IMU, uh, Al Qaeda, and other groups operating inside of Afghanistan. Um, so, what what is it that can be done to shift a little bit away? from viewing Pakistan only through the security lens when it comes to Afghanistan, especially considering the fact, and this is a figure that, um, I forget the gentleman, but somebody quoted in a, in a conference recently that, you know, 91% of Pakistan's borders uh, are countries that are not necessarily friendly towards Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, and this, the whole idea of Pakistan continuing the CD cooperation with the US only antagonizes uh, our friends on the Afghan side further. Right. That's a great point. Um, this has always been a challenge. And I would argue that um, if you get outside of official government channels, uh, I think there's a lot more prospects for looking at the U.S.-Pakistan relationship through a non-security lens. I mean, yeah. as you would know, educational cooperation is a, is a huge achievement. It's long been a huge achievement mm -hmm. in U.S.-Pakistan relations. Mm -hmm. The fact that you know, it's, a, it's a statistic that the U.S. Embassy oftentimes repeats for good reason, mm -hmm. that the Fulbright program, it's, Pakistan is the biggest one mm -hmm. uh, throughout Fulbright. Yep. That's been going on for many years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have a, a U.S.-Pakistan business council, which is never going to be as big as the U.S.-India business council, but you've got some major American companies that mm -hmm. have been in that for a while and have been investing in yep. Pakistan for quite some time. Mm -hmm. So clearly, if you get outside of official government channels, there's more 
support for the idea of, 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 of broader cooperation with Pakistan. And you know, the diaspora is, is also critical. I mean, the, the Pakistani diaspora is now the second fastest growing Asian diaspora in the U.S. And mm -hmm. It's a diaspora that I would argue is, is not necessarily the most organized, uh, but there are some factions of it that are very keen to figure out how to, for instance, promote more cooperation between the two sides in the areas of of high tech, IT, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So there's a lot of potential there. Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that the, part of the problem is that the US, even though it has an alliance with Pakistan, it's had several different alliances with Pakistan, there's been strategic dialogue, there's been some talk about strategic relationship. It's not really a strategic relationship. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's a transactional relationship, mm -hmm. which for many people is a bad word. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be, because most US relationships are transactional, mm -hmm. based on what happens to serve US interests at any one point. And at the end of the day, unfortunately, the US has tended to look at Pakistan through a security lens because it believes that its main interests in Pakistan tend to be dictated by security issues, which yeah. have ranged over the time from you know, partnering with Pakistan to fight communism, mm -hmm. to fighting terrorism, to worrying about terrorism in Pakistan, mm -hmm. and, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, so it's gonna be it, it difficult to get away from that, but I actually am heartened. I, mean, I think we've seen in recent months, and go, even going back into when Imran Khan was still in office, We've seen significant scale-ups in non-security cooperation. I think health is a big example. Mm -hmm. I mean, as you would know, though many, I think many here in Pakistan don't realize this, yep. the U.S. has sent more COVID pandemic vaccines yes. to Pakistan than any other country. Um, and the, the new ambassador here, Ambassador Blom, one of his first moves was to set up a new bilateral dialogue on health. That's, that's great. And I think with these floods, of course, you know, the obvious, the catastrophic impacts on health and public mm -hmm. health, would, would make that bilateral health dialogue appear to be something that could really shine, so yep. to speak, right now. Yep. So, you know, you know, if you're looking for silver linings out of the pandemic and especially the floods, I think that those may provide more opportunities for non-security cooperation between the U.S. and Pakistan. But certainly, you know, old habits and old views die hard mm -hmm. in, in Washington at a moment when, you know, quite frankly, there's not enough bandwidth to do a comprehensive Pakistan policy review and think about how to really broaden the relationship beyond mm -hmm. security. But I am heartened by what we've seen over the last few months. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right as far as the COVID-19 vaccines are concerned. I think the vast majority of the population is actually not aware of this, which is also a bit of a commentary on the PR machine yes. that exists, not just on the US side, but I guess also on the Pakistan side. And I think the health cooperation, especially with Ambassador Blom here now, is critical for the floods. Um, some of the numbers that we've seen regarding, you know, especially with maternal and childcare health coming out of the floods is just staggering. I mean, there's somewhere around 660,000 women um, right. that are pregnant that are part of the 33 million affected. Mm -hmm. And within the month of September alone, for example, we're expected, uh, 73,000 of those women are, are expected to give birth mm -hmm. in extremely squalid, extremely difficult conditions and environments with floodwaters still receding and them not really having access to their own homes. So I think health is absolutely a key area. Uh, another area, of course, is uh, uh, exports. Uh, right. The U.S. remains one of Pakistan's, not, not one of the, the biggest export destination for Pakistan. There's close to 3,500 items, I believe, um, that are on a list that go duty-free. Uh, but I do feel, and this is a conversation we've been having internally at the Bad Lab as well, along with our partners and various uh, non-resident fellows, that this aspect of it, the export aspect of it, the, the transactional or however you want to call it aspect of it, can be dramatically enhanced and improved. Um, and I guess that sort of really leads me to my two-part next question, which is, what are some of these low-hanging fruits, in addition to health, in addition to 
um, uh, you know, the COVID-19 vaccine and post-pandemic related uh, uh, support that the two countries can sort of focus on and sort of, you know, do a little bit of more of a stitch up, especially considering that temperatures have been raised. And the second part of that question, I guess, is why is it that Pakistan cannot be viewed um, as a normal country or treated as one? I mean, you've answered some of that question, but I, I just very specifically wanted to use the word, word normal because Pakistan is not really ever treated as, you know, a bilateral nation to just have a relationship with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think if you go back to the themes that figured in the strategic dialogue that was in place between the U.S. and Pakistan for a period of time, starting in 2009, 2010, yep. whenever it came out, it was suspended several times. Mm -hmm. It hasn't resumed for a few years. But I think there's, if you talk, want to talk about low-hanging fruit, I think there are a number of key uh, useful areas there. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, some of them we've already talked about, uh, but you know, something like energy, something like climate change, women's issues, education. Mm -hmm. I see that all as, as, as low-hanging fruit, just because there's a pretty long legacy. Again, this is something that may not necessarily be known by many, by large audiences here or in the U.S. There is a pretty long legacy of mm -hmm. U.S.-Pakistan cooperation. Uh, in those areas. I mean, the U.S. has long been a top development um, provider to, to Pakistan in terms of development assistance. Mm -hmm. And so you, you have that legacy. It should be easy to, to resurface that, so to speak. And I think that climate change really is be, that has to be seen as low hanging fruit, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's no better, there's no better in those, there's no better wake up call yeah. of how important this issue is than given what's what happened here with the floods in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. is clearly committed to to help in that regard. As we discussed earlier, the key is to go beyond immediate assistance and think about the longer game. And so I think that you know it's 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 a logical place for the two to to work. And I was making that argument. Previously, when you had a prime minister here who, who, who appeared to be committed to, to climate change mitigation, even though one could argue of whether actual policies match that. But even now, uh, I would think there's going to be multi-partisan support in Pakistan in, within the broader political elite that there needs to be more focus on climate change. And that's mm -hmm. a top priority for the Biden administration. So maybe this could entail setting up some type of new dialogue on climate change. Mm -hmm. We have the health, the bilateral health dialogue. Why not one on climate change mm -hmm. uh, as well? doesn't have to be at the highest levels. It doesn't have to be minister level, even if it's more mid-level. Mm -hmm. Just to have the two sides talking, just to get some smart people from both countries and governments on both sides talking about what could be done, what would work, what are the biggest needs here, what are the, big, where, what are the biggest areas that the U.S. can assist. I think that could be a big start right there. Yeah. So, your, so to your question about why the U.S. has never seen Pakistan as a normal country, yeah, it's a fair point. Uh, I would argue that one could make the same argument about many countries, because I go back to what I said before, that you know, there's relatively few countries that the U.S. looks at uh, in terms of pursuing a relationship with these countries for the sake of pursuing the relationship. Mm. You have to look at what I would describe as the special relationships mm. that the U.S. has with a very select few na uh, mm. number of countries. One would be Israel, another would be the UK, Australia, Japan, some of the US main treaty allies that it's been with for quite some time, Japan, some of its NATO partners. So mm -hmm. there've been plenty of tensions with the UK and France for sure. Um, very few countries that the US is willing to look at just through the lens of those countries themselves and not through other things that are happening. Um, I think part of the problem with, with Pakistan is that you know, they're, they're bad things, so to speak, perceived in Washington, bad things that have been happening in Pakistan that bear on U.S. interests. And that has then sort of taken attention away from 
a broader, deeper focus on the relationship. So, you know, the problems with, with terrorism for many years here, the concerns for many years are not as much now about the safety of nuclear weapons. Um, those were two things that I think came to dominate the relationship in a big way from the perspective of the U.S. in terms of how Pakistan was perceived. Mm -hmm. And given that stability, it's hard to get away from the stability focus. So long as there were those concerns about uh, nuclear issues and concerns about terrorism and the possible interplay between the two, mm -hmm. that really, I think, made it difficult to, to situate the relationship in a broader way. And I emphasize neither of those are perceived as big, bigger as concerns now as much as they were in the past, mm -hmm. for sure. But for many years, that was that was the case. Mm -hmm. But you know, I think that now you have a good opportunity right now I think, yep. to try to reorient the lens to Pakistan in the sense that, uh, you know, we could talk about the resurgence of the Pakistani Taliban, but we don't have terrorism threats like you're used to. No. Um, the U.S. is no longer in Afghanistan, so it doesn't need to be concerned as concerned, quite as concerned about the likes of the Haqqani network and so on, its relationship to, to Pakistan. Um, you know, we're seeing this, this momentum for focusing on non-security cooperation. There's new bilateral dialogues being launched. It's been a while since we've had that type of, since we've had that type of momentum. But, so I think that there's an opportunity to look at Pakistan as, as so-called normal country. Uh, but I would say this, that for many years, U.S. officials have looked at Pakistan as an important country in its own right because of its location, because of its relationships with the likes of China, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, uh, you know, its, its population, which of course is, is young and big. Now, these are all, I think, reasons that the U.S. has identified to engage with Pakistan just for the sake of engaging with Pakistan, or at least recognizing that it's an important country in its own right and not because of other sort of other sort of ex exogenous factors, so mm. to speak. So we could be seeing a bit of, of a shift in that lens. But uh, I, I'm with you. I, I certainly hope that there's a shift because I think Pakistan deserves better. That it should be seen, it should be perceived by 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 Washington for the for the country that it is. Yep. Um, my last question to you, uh, I think a part of that you've already answered, so I won't go through the entire question because I think there is something to be said about the political vitriol and acrimony that exists inside of Pakistan. Um, not just in terms of the coalition government actively fighting against an individual who is very actively raising temperatures on the streets, has huge popularity. I would, in fact, argue at this point that perhaps Imran Khan is the most popular he has ever been um, and truly has become, you know, sort of the, the voice of the masses in many ways and, and, and of segments of society that we didn't think uh, would come out onto the streets. But that um, those issues because of fiscal pressures now also exist within the coalition government and might even affect intra-party intra uh, dynamics within the ruling uh, specific one party. Um, and all of that, of course, also has a bearing on foreign policy, relationships with the U.S., relationships with China, how things are approached. But one of the, and I think it's appropriate that throughout this conversation, the one thing that has kept coming up especially in light of the floods, uh, is the increased need for climate change and that being sort of this galvanizing glue, this cement that sort of brings everything together. One of the conversations or one of the ideas that the Bad Lab has been uh, speaking about and trying to sort of pursue is this whole idea of the intersection of climate change vulnerability and debt vulnerability mm. and how one of the things that needs to happen or at the very least there needs to be a push for it uh, is that 
there needs to be debt restructuring and or forgiveness for Pakistan for it to be able to funnel some of that money and some of those resources into climate financing, more specifically for adaptation, not necessarily mitigation for obvious reasons. Um, but that, that's what's, what is the need of the hour. Um, do you feel that that is something that bilaterals or multilaterals will be willing to consider? What are some of the things that Pakistan can do to sort of influence that? And is that even a fair ask? Yeah, it's, it certainly is a hard sell. Mm -hmm. uh, it's hard enough, as we discussed, to get the international community to buy into committing to longer-term, open-ended uh, climate adaptation mitigation support to Pakistan, though it's very much important, worth doing. Mm -hmm. When you get to the issue of debt forgiveness, debt restructuring, that's, that gets really tricky mm -hmm. as well, just because of you know, Pakistan's own record uh, when it comes to taking on so many loans and its indebtedness, which of course has, has sources across the board. You know, you, you and I both know that it's not just because of Chinese debt. It goes yep. much deeper than that. In fact, Chinese debt is not a major yep. contributor to, to Pakistan's overall debt. Um, I mean, look, uh, you know, the last prime minister, Imran Khan, he tried to make debt forgiveness into a, a big issue. I mean, mm -hmm. he was championing that on the, on the world stage. He was mm -hmm. going before the UN and calling for, for that. And I don't think he got very far. Mm -hmm. And so if, if he didn't get very far and he was making that a big priority, that, that suggested it could be even tougher now mm -hmm. for, for this current government here, which is burdened by, by so, many, uh, so many different challenges. I do think that the floods perhaps give Pakistan its strongest argument yet, yeah. but it's time to, to sort of rethink that. But, but the I, window is short. The win exactly. Yeah, the window is short. And you know, I do fear that within the coming weeks, uh, you know, that, that window of opportunity could, could shut because unfortunately, you're going to see much less media attention on the floods. You're going to see much less international uh, donor assistance to floods, which, mm -hmm. which would not be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, the moment is now. And I think that with, of course, the UNGA meetings uh, coming up uh, this month, I think that, that the, your prime minister will have an opportunity. I understand he'll be, he'll be traveling to New York to, uh, to give Pakistan's remarks. Mm -hmm. it's that, that could be an opportunity for him to, to put that on the table. And to get that conversation going at the UN, certainly it's worth bringing up with bilateral partners, uh, including the US and certainly uh, partners in the EU and so on. But, um, you know, again, the, the question is, what, what argument would Pakistan make? Mm. What, what, would, what would be its big pitch? Yeah. That's, that's the question. But mm. I think that this is certainly, if there was ever a time to have that conversation, it's now. Absolutely. Um, Michael, it, there's a big difference between watching you on television um, reading your Twitter threads and having a conversation with you in person. Um, I must say I'm very humbled uh, and in absolute awe of the manner in which you frame some of these issues and how you analyze some of these issues and very grateful for you sparing the time today. We spoke quite a bit about the floods today. I do want to flag with the audience that um, the next episode for the audit is specifically focusing on the floods. Uh, in fact, we went back and interviewed General Nagata, who was overseeing some of those operations, uh, Ambassador Ann Patterson, uh, at the time, as well as General Nadim on the Pakistani side, who was looking at flood relief efforts from the Pakistani perspective. And it has a lot of information about what we learned in 2010, what we did not apply, and how this might unfold in the coming years, because these floods are now no longer a, a one-time event. This is going to continue to happen and continue to exacerbate. That being said, um, uh, thank you very much, Michael. Uh, I'm very grateful for your time uh, and for your analysis. Uh, it's a tremendous opportunity for Tabad Lab and people here as well as our audience to learn from you uh, and to be able to tap into 
you know, some of the strategic thinking that goes into some of these very critical, key, uh, and salient questions. Um, so thank you for being here. I appreciate your time. Um, this has been another episode of uh, The Audit, a special episode um, uh, with uh, Mr. Michael Kugelman of the Wilson Center. Um, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.